Those of you who have your Bibles with you, uh, we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it. Today's text in your order of worship. You can follow along on your phone any number of ways. Uh, I'm going to actually read all the Ten Commandments. I think I'm going to do that every week. So I said, you hear the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now the people, when the, when, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. And I pray also that you would bring um, great conviction of sin as, as we look at the commandments, that's, that's almost inevitable, but I also pray this morning, especially you bring, bring great commi- uh, conviction of mercy and grace and deliverance and redemption uh, for those who would have it. Father, I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things, amen and amen. You know, if you, unless you've been living under a rock, maybe, uh, in the past 10 or 15 or 20 years, you, you've seen uh, the Lord of the Rings movies or The Hobbit, right? It's on TBS now. It's that sort of ubiquitous. And if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, you can guess, even if you haven't, or if you've read it, what, the, what it's about, right? It's about rings. It's about a ring. In fact, one ring in particular, the great ring of power. And a lot of the story hinges upon one character who you simultaneously love and hate. You know who I'm talking about? Gollum? Right? Remember Gollum? Gollum is just this average guy, this hobbit, if you will. And remember hobbits are, I don't know how tall they are. They're three feet tall. And he finds this ring of power. But you see, the ring of power has been crafted in such a way that it's sort of like a psychic amplifier. It makes, it, it makes you, above all things, desire it. And it makes you desire to use it to, to, to do the things that you think are right. And he finds it. And for years, centuries, he, he basically is staring at this ring. 
And you learn from the hobbit, something you learn from the commands is that ultimately we reverence what, or we begin to reflect what we revere. In other words, the longer you stare at something, the more you become like it, but also we become what we worship. If you've seen the hobbit, right? Remember when he calls the, the ring? Right, yeah. It's my precious. I remember there's a, there's a scene in the first when Bilbo has the ring. He isn't corrupted yet. And he says, the ring is precious to me. And Gandalf sort of says, what are you talking about? Right? He knows that once you start down that path, it's hard to pull back. So I'm, I ask you this question this morning to open as we look at the first commandment. What thing do you love more than any other thing? What is precious to you? What thing do, 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 is just, you know, that's the, the thing in your life that gives you meaning? We need to answer that right now, but keep it in mind as we go through because that's going to become a big question that you're going to need to answer by the end of the, the sermon and certainly by the end of your life, I think. And so we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we happen to be on the first commandment. Now, by the way, it just is the wise providence of God that I'm preaching the first commandment on the opening day of football season. That wasn't intentional, but it is God's providence, so we have to take that into account. Uh, Nonetheless, as we look at the first commandment, the first thing I want to do is remind you of the purpose of all the commandments. Remember, the purpose of the commandments was basically this, that God gave the commandments to Israel. Ultimately, he gave them to us to preserve and equip God's people in their mission to bless the nations. In other words, he didn't give us commandments just sort of in a willy-nilly fashion. You know, so I'm going to give you some stuff to keep you guys on, you know, keep you guys from getting in trouble. He gave them a mission to be the, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that would bear light to the, all the rest of the nations. And the tools that he gave them, among others, were the Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at, remember, principles for interpreting God's law? And the principles for interpreting God's law had to do with cups and cans and, or cups and coins and categories. That is, when you're looking at the Ten Commandments, you've got to realize that they not only apply externally, but they apply internally as well. Like the inside of the cup is as important as the outside. Also, when you talk about coins, that each, each law has, has a different, has, has, it's like a coin, and that one side might be negative, and the other side is almost, is by definition positive. So, for example, if the law says do not steal, that's the negative part. The positive part is be generous. So there's a positive aspect to every negative law and a negative aspect to every positive law. And finally, categories. You remember that each of the Ten Commandments stands for a category. So murder, in Jesus' uh, teaching, stood not only for murder, but it also stood for uh, actually being angry and refusal to reconcile and all those things. It's a category. So if you remember those things, we're going to jump into the first commandment. And there's a sense in which um, the first commandment, you know how there's one ring to rule them all. There's the sense in which there's one commandment to rule them all. That the first commandment, all the commandments are important, but the first commandment uh, sort of defines where we go with the rest of the commandments. So this morning, we're basically going to look at three things. Uh, We're going to look at the context of the commandment. We're going to look at the challenge of the commandment. What does it take to really follow this thing? Or how do we know how well we're doing? Or or how well we're not doing? My guess is you'll know by the end of the the next 20 minutes or half hour. And then finally, we're going to look at the Christ of the commandment. How does Jesus help us to make sense of the commandment? Or how does he actually help us to obey it or, or something else? So when you look at the context of the commandment, the first thing you have to realize, the context of the commandment, just in the biblical context, is Egypt. Remember, God has delivered them from Egypt, and he has brought them to Mount Sinai and gives them these commands. And let me just read them to you. 
verse uh, one, he says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So in Egypt, what you had was one of the most polytheistic cultures that ever existed, right? Polytheistic just means they have many gods. In fact, they had a god for almost everything. In fact, they had gods for, for if, you, if you remember the account, if you've read through Exodus, the plagues of Egypt, each of the plagues that God sent upon Egypt were an assault on a particular god that Egypt had. So the Egypt revered the Nile as being a god, and, and there was a god of the Nile. So if, god, if the real god wants to show his power, he just fills the Nile with blood. They had a god that was all about frogs. What does God do? He sends a plague of frogs upon them. He, they, they, they're gods that had to do with insects and bugs, plague of gnats, gods that had to do with livestock, kill the livestock. The, the biggest god that they had, the most powerful god, was Ra. He was the god of the sun. Plague of darkness, gone. Pharaoh himself was supposedly a god. Kill his firstborn. You see, God, the immediate context was God's asserting his, his uh, supremacy over all of their gods in Egypt by simply dispatching with them. In fact, Egypt, Pharaoh should have known better at the very beginning. Remember when Moses first came and, and there was a face-off and Pharaoh said, give me a sign from your God. And Aaron throws down his rod and it becomes a snake. You've probably seen that in Prince of Egypt, even if you haven't read it. It becomes a snake. And Pharaoh's magicians throw down their rods and they become snakes. And Aaron's rod, his snake, swallows their snakes. At that point, if I was Pharaoh, I would have given up. Because you see, the only place Egypt didn't have gods was the desert. And what represented the desert for them was snakes. So Israel's God is so big and so supreme that he is even powerful over the desert. That's big. And so God tells them, in the, in the immediate context, he has defeated all the Egyptian gods. But there's something even more than that. It's the way he reveals himself to Israel, the context. You see, the first commandment is actually verses two and three. When we list them out, you know, in the front of courthouses or in schools, wherever they're, they're allowed these days, we tend to start with, you shall have no other gods before me. But the command really starts with, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the land of Egypt. Why is that so important? See, it's important for this reason. It's because God could have delivered him. He could have delivered them in any way, shape, or form, and he could, have, he could have revealed himself to them. This is the first time that he's speaking to Israel as a whole, and it's the only time that all the people hear him. And so whatever he says now is going to be important, and whatever he says now is going to be indisputable. No one can say, well, I didn't hear that. They were all there. They heard it. And he could, have, he could have delivered them from Egypt and then gotten them all together and said, I am the God of the Shorter Catechism. Because of my being, wisdom, justice, holiness, goodness, and power, you ought to follow me and obey me at all times. Right? He could have said, I am God, the great and powerful. Ah! Right? And scared them all and said, now obey me or else. He could have been, remember, I love it in the Lord of the Rings, since that comes to my, remember Galadriel? Remember she, she, she you know, all shall love me in despair. I mean, he could have done that. He could have just threatened them into obeying him. And instead, he says this, I am the Lord your God who delivered you. The first command is this, remember that I delivered you and have no other gods besides me, the one who delivered you. That's important. 
mean, if you ask, ask this question, why would you want any other God? Why would you want a God who just drove you? Why would you want a God who, who, who threatened you? Why would you want a God who did anything but favor you? And that's what the first commandment says, is I am the God who has delivered you. I'm the God who has shown you favor, and now I want you to live in light of that favor. Have no other gods beside me. This isn't, by the way, a, a, a statement on monotheism, that there is only one real God who exists. The, the reason he had to say have no other gods is because of the Egyptian context. They had lots of gods. I don't want you to have those gods. I want you to trust me and me only. You see, the, the, the gist of the first commandment has to do with belief or unbelief. You notice there's nothing there, really, that you can, you can obey. There's no behavior in the first commandment necessarily other than to say, well, I believe in that God versus this God. But what does it mean to, to have no other gods on one hand? On the other hand, what does it mean to, to have him and only him? Well, what he's saying here basically is I want you to trust me and only me. As you move forward, I want to be the only God in your life. And remember, the, the good news is we reflect what we reverence. And so if you obey this command, you will become more like him. If you don't, you won't. And so the question is, how do we know where, where, what we're doing or how we're doing with regard to the first commandment? I've given you three tests I'm going to show you in a minute. The challenge to the first commandment is this, is that it's all-encompassing, right? Someone asked Moses, in the, how big is this command? And he said, it's big, man, it's really big. In fact, it's so big. Uh, I've told you before, just studying has sort of been overwhelming to me. The first commandment is all-encompassing in that it touches every other commandment. It's all-encompassing is because the first commandment touches every single area and part of your life and my life. There's not a, th a thought that you think or a behavior that you do or an act that you, you, you participate in that is not in one way, shape, or form touched by, informed by, driven by the first commandment. It is big. And so how do we know where we stand with regard to the first commandment? And that's where we have three tests that I'm going to talk to you about. Uh, the first test, we're going to talk about a sin test, we're going to talk about a love test, and we're going to talk about a trust test. So if the first, if, if, if the commandment is really about whether or not you are going to have me and me only as your God, whether you're going to trust me and me only, whether you're going to rely on my favor and only my favor, the first test, maybe the easiest test, is what I'm going to call the sin test, and it works sort of like this. The only way you can know how you're doing with regard to the first commandment is to use commandments two through 10 as a metric or as a measuring stick. And let me show you how that works. I started with number five because it's the second part. You know, the, the first part of the law has to do with our duty toward God. The second part is our duty toward neighbor. So how, how does looking at these commandments show us whether or not we actually understand the first commandment? Well, it works something like this. Remember when we talked about honoring your father and mother? That really, that represents a category of anyone who would be in authority over you. Anyone under who, 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 to whom you're supposed to submit. And so when you refuse to submit, for example, to governing authorities, or when you speak out against them uh, negatively, what you're saying is, God, I don't trust the people that you put over me. And I don't trust the fact that you put them over me. Remember, that even though the Bible says that all governing authorities are placed there by God, they do his bidding, ultimately. And so when we don't honor authority, really what we're saying is, God, we don't trust your authority either to make this decision. When we talk about murder, right? How does, does participating in murder also break the first commandment? 
well, why, would you, why do you murder someone unless you're sort of just nuts, I guess? Well, you murder because you don't really trust the justice of God. That ultimately the person has wronged you, and so you're not going to trust God's justice to take care of that. And remember, it's a category, so even when you get angry, right? Whenever we get angry, we think, I, des- I deserve something that I didn't get, or I got something I didn't deserve in God. That's because you didn't give me what I deserved. You're breaking the first commandment. Adultery, the same thing. When you commit adultery, what are you saying? God, I really don't think that the woman or the man you gave me was, was the right one. I heard people say that. I don't trust your favor. I don't trust your providence in this to have given me this person. I don't trust the fact that you want me to be single right now. I, don't, I just don't. And you can go on and on and on. Why do we steal? Because we don't trust the fact that God's going to provide for us. Why do we lie? Because we're afraid of the consequences that God's not going to cover our backside if we tell the truth. On and on and on it goes. You see, you can't break any of the, the commandments 2 through 10 without also breaking number one, but all the rest of the commandments actually show us what you think about number one. I'll be honest with you, study. This stopped me in my tracks a few times this week. Because when you look at how big it is, it's different than saying, do I want to steal? Well, now the question is, what is, what is my breaking this command actually say about what I believe about God? Has he shown me favor or not? Do I trust him and him only? That's the sin test, and it gets pretty deep. The next test is what we call the love test. Origen said this. He was a third century church father. He says, when each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. In other words, what is the thing that you love more than anything else? I was, you know, I said this morning that um, I really intentionally, as our kids were growing up, Judy and I both, we never said to them, I love you more than anything else in the world. Because in theory, I'm not supposed to. In theory, I'm supposed to love Jesus more than anything else in the world, and I love you guys almost that much. That's sort of what I would get at. But what is it that if you love so much that if it was taken from you, it would just be the end of the world for you? I mean, really, it would just be over for you. Is it your job? Is it your spouse? Is it one of your kids? Is it your good name or your reputation? Anything can, can become that for us. You know, I, there was a, it was a very sad story a week or two ago about a, a pastor who committed suicide after his name came out on this uh, affair site list. Now, why would he do that? I mean, everyone is blaming the media and everyone is blaming these. Well, at some level, his reputation for him was the thing that he trusted in. And when it was taken from him, he couldn't handle it anymore. And think about anything in your life can become that to you. What do you love? The love test asks you, what is precious to you? That if you lost it, it would be the end for you. The next test is the, the, the trust test. This is from Luther's larger catechism. He said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. So the way this test works is like this, is when things are difficult for you, where do you turn? When things are really rough, when something unexpected and something unexpectedly bad happens to you, where do you turn? Do you, in what do you trust? Is the first place you go maybe to the refrigerator? Or is, it, is it maybe the first place you go is to the mall? Maybe the first place you go is some other place. Where do you go when something really bad happens to you? 
What do you trust in that if it, it, that, that you think if, if this would just happen, my life would be good? You know, see, the, the biggest thing, one of the things that I think we struggle with in America is this whole, the whole realm of politics is really, it's just sort of this morass of idolatry. What do I mean by that? You know, as a pastor, I've let you guys know before, one of the times of, of one of the seasons I can't stand more than any other season is when it comes time, election time for the president of the United States. Because when it, during the election, you hear people, and you, often you hear in churches, oftentimes, if we could just elect this person, the country would be better. Or if we would elect this person, the country would be better. And so I'm going to today, I've always said I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Today is going to be the only time, and I'm going to do it one time, I'm going to tell you who you need to vote for in the next presidential election. Are you ready? Okay, so first of all, you have to realize that the gospel always, our job is to spread the gospel, and the way that the gospel works is the gospel almost always spreads further and faster and better in the context of suffering and misery. And so here's what I want you to do. If you're a Democrat, and you think that the worst thing that could ever happen would be to have another Republican president because they would squash the little guy and they would make lives miserable, you need to vote for a Republican and if you are a Republican, and you think those Democrats are just running the country into the ground, and if we get another Democratic president, the United States is going to go away forever, you need to vote for a Democrat. Because at least according to your own worldview, both of those candidates will cause such extreme suffering and misery that the gospel will probably explode. And you see, the fact that you flinched when I told you that you should vote for someone other than you normally would vote for says it might be an idol to you. See how that works? Do we put our trust in people? Do we put our trust in institutions? Do we put our trust in our reputations? Where do we go in order to, to, to make sure that we are taken care of? That to you is your God. Unfortunately for you and me, it, it isn't oftentimes the real God. It's something else, and that is called an idol, right? What are the idols of our heart? And so you, get, you start looking at the first commandment, and you say, okay, the sin test I didn't do very well on that. And you look at the love test and say, well, I don't do very well on that either. And you look at the trust test and say, I really failed at that. Where does that leave you? Well, that leaves you, I hope, in a position to look at the Christ of the commands. So let's, let's finish up with this. We're going to look at Luke chapter 4. And notice, this is when Jesus went into the wilderness, and he was tempted by Satan. And really, he's a good example of what it, how you, someone who obeys the first commandment. Let me read it to you. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give you all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So did you see what Jesus did? 
Satan, Jesus has been in the wilderness for, for 40 days. He has not eaten. And Luke makes a point of saying, and he was hungry. If you've ever gone on any good length of time without eating anything, you've become very hungry and would almost eat anything. That's my experience. And in that moment, Satan comes to him and says, in verse 3, he says, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, written man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, I'm going to trust in God to provide for me. That there's more to, to, to life than just being satisfied here. And he comes and says to him, I'm going to give you all this stuff, all the things you, that you, you don't have now. I'm going to give you all this power, all this glory, if you just worship me. Well, Jesus knows that you become what you worship. And so he doesn't want to become like Satan. And so he says, you should worship him and him only. Now, for Jesus, he was God, of course. At the end, Satan quotes the Bible back to him and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. He'll take care of you. And Jesus says, don't, I don't put my God to the test. Why? I'm going to trust in his protection. At every point, Jesus trusts in the protection, the providence, the, the provision of God. And so therefore, is he an example to us? Sort of. You see, most of the time when we hear this particular text preached, we say, now, if, you're, if you want to obey the first commandment, if you, if you want to face temptation, what you need to do is the same thing Jesus did and just bust out the word of God on Satan, right? As long as you have the right verse, Satan will flee from you. Did you notice eventually Satan got the game and he started quoting the Bible back to Jesus? Because, by the way, the Bible can become an idol to you as well. What is this about then? Well, the point to this story is not that Jesus was our example, but that Jesus was our substitute. What Jesus was doing in the wilderness was not saying, he wasn't saying, you know, I bet you eventually this guy is going to preach on the first commandment. He's going to really need an example of what it looks like to obey the first commandment. And so I'll do this and he'll have a good illustration. It'll be great. Jesus was in the wilderness for a purpose. He was our substitute. He was obeying the first commandment because you and I have no ability whatsoever in and of ourselves to obey the first commandment. We just don't have it in us because obeying the first commandment entails obeying all the rest of the commandments. And so unless you have someone who is there who can do it, who is actually a substitute for you, who's willing to do it for you, who's able to do it for you, you are sunk. But here's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus, as our substitute, obeyed completely and utterly and perfectly the first commandment. And when he went to the cross, he bore the punishment for the fact that you and I almost never obey the first commandment. And when he rose from the dead, he gives us new life. Now, we, like Israel, look to Jesus not as someone who is going to crush us for trying to obey. Now we look to Jesus and say, because he delivered me, because he has changed me, I don't have to steal. I can trust him. Because he has done this, I don't have to be unfaithful. I can trust him. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I can, I can trust in God's provision because he has provided everything for me in the person and work of Christ. Is that where you are? You see, at the end of the day, you should leave here actually encouraged because Jesus has, has stood in your stead and you have become as righteous as him by faith. And it's that faith now that will help you continue to grow in his likeness. In other words, remember you reflect what you, you revere? If you are reflecting and revering Jesus, you become more like Jesus. And there's this amazing thing that happens. And I'll close with this. You see, if, if you are revering some other thing as God, the biggest God that most of us struggle with is ourself. 
that we are the, the primary God, we're the primary stumbling block in our own lives, we're the ones that want control, we're the ones that we trust, we're the ones that we look to to provide, all these things. If you only stare at yourself, you become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. You become like Gollum. But if you're like Jesus and you're worshiping him and him only, the more you're worshiping and revering Jesus, the more you're actually having to put off your own stuff, get rid of your own gods, and, and humble yourself is the word the Bible uses. And the more you humble yourself, do you remember what the Bible says? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. In other words, the more you are, are reverencing, the more you're worshiping, trusting in the cross of Jesus, the greater you become because you're reverencing the one who is infinitely and utterly great. And that's what Jesus said. Now the question that the first command begs at some level is, am I really willing to put off all of my gods? Am I will, willing to walk to the end of the line based on the promise that that actually is the way to the front of the line? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we consider this commandment, um, it is all-encompassing, it is big, and it is weighty, and yet so is the gospel. The gospel that, that comes and, and releases us, that redeems us from sin, that redeems us from slavery, that now asks us to obey in the context of being as ones who have been delivered, as ones who, who stand under the shadow of a, of a cross, where everything has been accomplished, and now it is to us to, to work it out. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen.